Hey everyone, how are you? This is John. Three questions, and today I have uh, Dan Ritterman on the line. Dan, how you doing? John, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, hanging in there just like everyone else. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. Uh, so Dan is a uh, commercial real estate broker. He works with uh, Tactics Real Estate Advisors, and he is also an attorney at law. So he has a you know pretty good understanding of, of two different um, you know, two different schools of thought. So yeah. let's just get right into the first question. Um, so I, I, having a background on the residential side, I understand, you know, I've heard all the reasons why people don't want to use a realtor. Um, and it, you know, it, I imagine it's different on your side because you, you, I mean, you can expand a little bit about this, but you guys work primarily with businesses and you help them rent and purchase you know, uh, locations, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So we are what's sort of known in the industry as a tenant broker, um, which means we exclusively represent companies and helping them navigate the process of usually leasing, because that's what most companies do. Um, but we also do build to suit transactions, you know, uh, purchases of buildings and things like that. Um, leasing tends to be the least capital intensive, at least upfront, which is why mm -hmm. most companies sort of choose to go in that direction. Um, we have set up a practice that is it's sort of similar to how your attorney works where they only represent one side of a transaction, right? So we don't believe that anyone gets the best representation if the person who's representing you is also representing the person on the other side of the negotiating table, which in our case is generally speaking landlords. And the companies that we are representing most of the time, it's not worth it for them to have an internal real estate expert who is used to navigating the complex process of drafting a lease. So we step into the shoes of a person who might be working within that company almost in a consultant role and then help them walk through that process to make the best decision for the future for them without having to hire somebody full-time to run this process for them. Um, generally speaking, our larger projects will take in the two to three year range. So we get um, sort of uh, brought on about two years before your current lease is expiring. And then we walk you through that process in, in a very formalized way. Um, we think that, Drafting a commercial lease is a complex process, right? There are no sort of forms. There are no sort of, there are boilerplate terms that the landlords will use, but everything is sort of up for negotiation. And, and we believe that the earlier you can get involved in that negotiating process, the more leverage you'll have. And that's sort of the expertise that we bring to the table for our clients. Mm -hmm. So is there, is there a specific business or how, how would I better say it? It's a bit, are businesses usually at a specific point in their timeline of existence where they bring someone like you on or do you work with brand new businesses as well? We work with brand new businesses, but the, the goals are different when you're just a, when you're a brand new business, right? So if we're working with a, an established law firm who's been around for decades, they have a, well, they would have said three months ago, they can project what their future growth will look like pretty yeah. closely. I think things are a little bit different right now. And I'm happy to talk more about that kind of the changes with, with you know, the, the COVID pandemic. Um, but with a startup company in particular, we work with them because we want to be with them as they grow, but their goals are different. So for them, they need maximum flexibility. What if, what if they grow, they get raised some funding and they have to get, you know, three times the size very quickly. They need the flexibility to take on that extra space. On the other side, what if things don't work out for them and the company either folds or contracts and they have to save on their real estate spend. So our goals, generally speaking, the smaller the company are is maximum flexibility in terms of the terms of the lease. Now you lose some leverage that way, but it's important for these companies to stay nimble so that they can move as the conditions change. Yeah, yeah. 
and then the the larger corporate you know i'm not corporate but the larger companies are looking for uh, like you said a, a, a different you know more leverage probably less rent or less expenses and they'll lock in longer Correct. So a lot of the landlords who own buildings, they're looking for long-term deals, which they can then go take to the market to borrow against on their buildings to then raise additional capital. So the longer that they can lock a tenant into a deal for, the better it looks for them when they go out to the market to these lenders. So generally speaking, the longer term that you're willing to offer a landlord, the more money they'll be willing to put into your space to help you build it out and really make it what you want it to be, but also the more leverage that you'll have in negotiating these other terms, such as your rental rate, your escalations, and all, all the other factors that go into making up what your rental payment is. Got it. So do you, do you also work on the uh, landlord side as well? We don't. Um, in fact, if you read the engagement letter that we send to our clients, which is very short, one of, the, one of the biggest parts of it is talking about how we don't represent any commercial landlords whatsoever. And therefore, when you're going to negotiate with a landlord, and it's particularly appropriate right now where a lot of uh, companies want to reach out to their landlord and ask for some kind of rent relief. Well, we're suggesting that you should probably go ask the broker who brokered your deal for you to help you in that process. But what if that broker also represents the landlord that you're asking for rent relief? So. The, the whole conflict of interest that we try to sort of sell ourselves on is really showing itself right now, where if you think about who these brokers' allegiances are to, their source of repeat business, for the most part, are the landlords they represent. And any one tenant, no matter how large you are, are still a one-off tenant compared to the power of the landlord who owns the entire building. So we think that these are kind of the times where people start to reconsider who they're using for their broker and think, you know, maybe the guy who is my neighbor or my brother-in-law, maybe I should start thinking about that guy who I heard from who's an attorney known to business for a bunch of years. So we tend to get pretty busy when, when things get rough because companies are looking for that extra little expertise where maybe you didn't need yeah. when the market was good. Yeah. So it, and it's interesting you say that too, because you said, uh, you, know, your, your, you know, your neighbor or your cousin or your uncle's, you know, uh, friend. Um, and, 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 and there is a correlation, you know, on the residential side too, to this, you know, there are, there, there's a clear difference between, you know, the, the, the top 10%, top 5% of people in the industry, right? Um, and, and what they show up and do on a daily basis. So you're providing a service where you are, you know, eliminating any issues of a dual agency or, or any potential conflicts and just truly representing, you know, the, the, um, the company's best interest. Yeah, that's right. And it really is the same argument that your attorney would make when you go talk to them, right? Yeah. You would never want to hire an attorney who's also representing the person that you're either suing or trying to conduct a transaction with. How can you get zealous representation that way? Um, we end up doing a lot of uh, work for law firms because of that, because we're sort of speaking their language when we go down that path. But like I kind of said a minute ago, times like this, when things get tight and when things get stressful is when people are sort of looking for what can I do to get kind of a leg up? And we think that hiring an exclusive tenant rep is one of those things that you can do to make sure you're getting the best possible outcome. Yeah. How has the, uh, how has the law degree helped on the uh, commercial real estate side? Well, at the end of the day, a lease is a blank sheet of paper that you start writing terms on. Yeah. Right. Um, when you buy a house, uh, if you've got anyone out there has ever bought a house before, you know, the, the forms that you use to buy a house usually, usually are pretty standard. Mm -hmm. Right. There are some contingencies you fill out. There's some fields you have to fill out. But usually those forms are 
you could print them offline and kind of figure out how to go about it, right? Yeah. A commercial lease doesn't work that way. A commercial lease is a contract between two presumably sophisticated parties that is highly negotiated over a course of several months. And the terms of that lease, you know, absent some other reason, will generally be you know, the, the resolution for any dispute that comes under the lease, right? And we negotiate an LOI or a letter of intent, which might be three, five, seven pages, something like that. Both parties sign it. And it's non-binding, but it does lay out the terms that both parties want to assign this lease under. And then the landlord will take that LOI and they'll send it off to their attorney. And your five-page LOI comes back as a 50-page lease. And that 45 pages that was added by the attorney, a lot of it is going to be fluff, but a lot of it is going to be important. And they're going to be material things to you. So in our opinion, if there is something that's very important to you, it needs to be in that LOI before it gets sent to the, to the attorney to draft a lease. When it comes back, if there's something in there that your client really wants to put their foot down on, the first thing the other broker and other attorney are going to say is, well, if it was that important to you, why wasn't it in your LOI, right? Mm -hmm. So you kind of lose leverage if you don't get it into the letter of intent before it gets sent off. And by the time the letter of intent gets signed, you may have already kind of have your heart set on that new office space. You may have told your employees about it. You may think that you're moving. And to stop the whole process when the lease comes back is difficult to do. So we think that by having sort of a, um, a broker that has a higher level of expertise in negotiating documents on the front end puts you in a better position to have that LOI be properly drafted to get you the best result as quickly as possible with the lowest legal fees at the end of the day. Yeah. It's, yeah, that's interesting. So it's, you know, the school of thought is you, you, you want to you be the best version of yourself or the offer or the LOI initially. And you don't want to have to, like you said, lose leverage by, by walking things back. I think that's exactly right. Um, I, I, you, you really do lose leverage that late in the game, and then you end up settling for things you otherwise might not have. Yeah, yeah. And a common misconception is that you lose money in the long run if you don't, you know, take, take the clear stance initially, take, you know, take the strong stance initially. Um, do the extra work initially, that'll save you money long-term. Absolutely. And that's sort of an interesting um, segue into the way that we get compensated, which which is kind of important to discuss because people don't really realize that, you know, we kind of bill ourselves as a consultant and, and oftentimes that comes along with sort of this stigma of, well, you you, this large out-of-pocket cost and that couldn't be further from the truth. Our services and almost all broker services are free to their client effectively. There are no out-of-pocket costs. We don't bill our clients anything directly. So the way it will usually work for these buildings are the, the landlord or building owner will hire a broker to be the rep for their building, and that broker will negotiate a commission pool with that landlord. Usually it's 6% in Philadelphia. It varies market to market. depends yeah. on where you're located, right? So it kind of works like a residential transaction. If the seller's agent also brings a buyer, in this case, if the landlord's broker also brings the tenant, they will just scoop the entire pot, right? They're not cutting their landlord a break by and large, unless there's some kind of other agreement to that. If a tenant broker like myself brings a tenant, then the landlord's broker has to split their commission with us. The point being that there's no dollars added to the deal because a tenant broker is involved in the transaction, right? So we don't add any dollar value to the total deal overall. So we don't think there's any reason that you shouldn't have your own broker who isn't also representing the landlord. Yeah. Negotiating with. That's good. What are some common things you hear um, that, that kind of make you almost shake your head when you hear businesses who don't want to use a, a, you know, use your services? 
I think in the residential world, you get this a lot too, where people just think that this is a thing that they can do themselves. Right. Um, yeah. and, and I think that we see that a lot, um, where we see very poorly negotiated LOIs or, um, leases that, that have clauses that we would simply never allow our clients to agree to. Um, because you don't, if you're not versed in reading this language, it's not all clear. And these things aren't written in to be clear, right? Um, they're, they're sort of purposely, uh, purposely confusing is sort of a charged way to say it, but they're not written in plain English. Let, let's put it that way. So um, we see a lot of people want to do this themselves. We see a lot of people who have a personal relationship with their broker and they think all brokers are the same. They don't really want to um, entertain the idea that there might be more, um, you know, a more qualified person to do it. And I think the thing that we see a lot is a lot of people don't want to be told or don't want to have it be made apparent that the way they've been doing something for a very long time was not the best way to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think we're all guilty of this a little yeah. bit where um, we're almost like pot committed to the old way of doing things. And we don't want to stop and think that like, okay, it's a sunk cost. I've been doing it wrong for 20 years. Let's start doing it right now. Inertia just kind of keeps you doing things the way that you're doing. So, um, to get in with somebody and kind of convince them that either they've been doing it wrong themselves or the broker they've been using was not the best person that they've been using. That's a difficult hurdle for a lot of people to leap over. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So that's similar to something I hear in, in, in the coaching world too. Right. And there are some people who just aren't coachable. Right. And I imagine there are some businesses right. that you just can't work with and it, it has nothing to do with you. It's more to do with, you know, they are set in their ways and they will, they will do it wrong because it's their way of doing it. Um, so yeah, it, it's interesting that the parallels exist everywhere. Yeah. This is definitely not limited to real estate. And <laughs> I'm sure you see this too, where a lot of people that you're working with, I'm sure in the coaching world are, they're successful despite these things that they can improve upon. Right. So it's not like they're not doing well. It's just that they could probably be doing better. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's, that's the idea of, right. So, uh, you know, I, I, sh I share a weekly video, uh, calling fail forward Friday. Right. And, and I like learned this. years ago, I learned years ago that failure was my, one of my best teachers. Failure has, has no power over me. Right. Cause it's just a lesson. So if you fail at something and then you take a minute or a day or however long you need to be like, okay, so I didn't, it didn't work, but where was the lesson? What did I learn? You know, that, that, you know, it has no power over you in that sense. And, you know, and, and I think that is a real um, defining indicator of who is the most successful are the people who can accept that, you know, and, and can learn. I agree. I think um, a lot of that has to do with sort of putting yourself out there for feedback also. Um, yeah. My, uh, my, the last boss that I had at Square before I left there was this guy named Eugene Broad. Um, he was, amazing about feedback on day one he asked you how you wanted to receive it do you want it in real time or do you want me to bottle it up and give it to you once a week um he sort of actually used some of those um personality tests the right way which is that he allowed you to kind of shape how you thought your answers negotiated how you would receive feedback and it was yeah. really um he really did a nice job of tailoring it to each person and, and i that that really went a long way to helping me kind of improve as a salesperson yeah yeah, and, and that's that's really cool that you bring that up. So, the me thinking this way isn't natural, right? I don't think people are born and are you know naturally inclined to hear how they messed up, right? I feel like you have to learn and you have to accept it. So the um, it, it it was a lot of 
you know, awareness and focus getting to a point where it would be like, okay, this is a good thing. And then you bring up um, personality profiles. Um, one of the biggest values personality profiles had for me is it took me personally out of situations as much as possible because I could just say, okay, this person, their personality is kind of put together like this and their brain works like this. So the reason that they did this or showed up this way isn't because they don't like me. It's just because that's how the brain works. And like when, when that, you know, when that switch went off, it, it completely changed how I showed up. I agree with that completely. And I had taken a lot of these personality tests in the past. And I don't think that, well, I don't think I ever took them seriously enough, but I don't think I ever had another person use them the right way. And that was really the eye-opening part for me was how he reacted to the answers that I had given. Yeah. Yeah. It's very cool. Um, okay. So question two, how, how, how are you guys existing in uh, the COVID world? How has it affected your business? I don't know yet is the short answer. Um, and I think that's the answer that a lot of people yeah. should be giving if they're able to think about the situation kind of rationally, right? I mean, I think for the first couple of weeks, I had this sky is falling mentality, like I think a lot of people did. And now for a lot of people, the sky did really fall, right? I mean, if you owned a restaurant or you're in retail, and I hope we'll talk about that in a little bit, a lot yeah. of experience with that. Like I feel awful for people whose businesses were kind of destroyed overnight. For us, it's going to be a little bit of a longer play. Um, commercial real estate in general kind of lags behind the general market. And I, I've been thinking about this a lot about why. And I think the, the most the easiest way to understand it is, let's just say that you owned a residential rental property that you were renting out to somebody, right? A lot of people kind of understand this, right? So you sign a one-year lease or a two-year lease, maybe, right? People aren't generally signing very long residential leases. So if there is a kind of catastrophic event in the real estate market, and the value of property drops, you can react to that very quickly, right? Um, at the very least, 12 months later, you're gonna have a restructuring of your rent to fall more in line with the market rate. So residential properties, their rentals turn over almost 100% every year, 50% every year, whatever it is. In the commercial real estate world, you sign a three, five, seven, or 10 year lease. So let's say the average lease is six or seven years. That means only about, I mean, this is rough math, but about 15% of leases roll every year, yeah. right? which means if you're a landlord, 80 plus percent of your tenants are locked in well past when we expect this to end. So landlords, at least legally, are not going to have to make any of these difficult decisions for a large percentage of their tenants immediately, unlike the residential world. So yeah. we sort of think that the implications of this on the commercial real estate market will take years to really understand. Um, in Philadelphia specifically, and every market is kind of different, um, rents are at an all-time high and vacancies were at an all-time low before this pandemic started. Mm -hmm. So it was an, it was the friendliest landlord market that we've had in decades. Yeah. And I can't see a scenario in the next two to three years where that doesn't change on some level, right? Mm -hmm. Some companies will go out of business. A lot of companies will go to remote work and decide that, you know, a lot of these teams that we never thought we could move out of our office actually work just fine at home. Yeah. Right. Um, and then they start looking at their rental bills every month and wondering why we're paying so much. So I don't think it's that people will stop using offices entirely, but I think that there will be sort of a shift in how much space companies are taking, um, who can work from home, how often people are working from home. Maybe you have two people sharing an office and they switch off days and, you know, certain teams come to the office on certain days, certain teams don't. So I think the end result of this at the end of the day will be 
companies taking less space and sort of almost releasing some pressure on the market in Philadelphia where there'll be some vacancies that come back onto the market and there will be more opportunity for tenants to get more aggressive in their negotiating. Um, for us, like at Tactics specifically, we tend to get pretty busy when things turn down in the market. Okay. Um, there aren't that many times that companies want to talk about real estate. Generally, it's when their lease is ending, when they want to expand to a new office, mm -hmm. or when things hit the fan, right? Yeah. So um, every company out there is running their file cabinet or whatever, their computer, yeah. pulling their lease out and reading <laughs> that lease to see what it says about what happens if they can't occupy their office space. And yeah. that tends to then lead them to call their broker. If they don't think their broker is up to the task, they start looking for a more qualified broker. And when they start looking for a more qualified broker, our name tends to come up on that list. Nice. Right? So yeah. um, what we end up doing is a lot of free advisory work. Let us read your lease. We'll give you our opinion. We'll reach out to your landlord on your behalf. See what we can, we can negotiate to help you kind of bridge this gap. And then on the other side, when things recover, a lot of those clients come back to us to negotiate their next lease because they've seen the quality of work that we can do. Mm. So um, I expect that this will have this. We will be busier in terms of new projects over the next few years. But for right now, it's really just helping companies triage. Like, you know, how can we save money on our different offices around the country and who can we negotiate with and where can we save dollars so that we can preserve going forward? Yeah. Interesting. The, uh, you brought up the, the work from home idea. Um, and I feel like that is going to be, there are going to be some things that are different on the other side of this. And I think that is particularly one of them. Um, you know, there are companies that are going to say, okay, well, we can have a common space where we have, you know, scheduled, you know, people in these days, people in these days, we have, we're going to have some teams that we just, you know, it's just going to be cheaper to support them from, from home. And then, um, so yeah, that is definitely going to change your landscape. Absolutely. And um, we have a, a couple clients who run pretty large contact centers or call centers. Um, and, and those are real estate intensive operations. They require very large open spaces. We mm -hmm. pack people in pretty close to each other. And I think just as one example, historically, that has not been the kind of thing that companies thought they could have people do from home. Yeah. And now they're being forced to. And what we're hearing is that, you know, they're not having any problems. They're basically running as efficiently, in some cases more efficiently, having people working out of their houses than they were before packing them all into this one area. So I agree with you that it's going to create um, some waves in our industry. I just don't know how it actually shakes out. I think co-working is going to be one of the first sort of um, casualties of this yeah. where, you know, I've, I've reviewed a lot of co-working agreements. Most of them have a 60 day cancellation period, which means, you know, these co-working problems are going to have like a standard, like long-term liability, short-term asset problem where if all, a lot of their tenants gave notice four weeks ago, their leases are going to end four weeks from now. And these places are still going to have to pay rent. Yeah. So um, I suspect that in the co-working industry specifically, things will happen sooner than in the rest of the market. Yeah. 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 I, I, it's interesting because there are so uh, Jake Dreyfus, he's the person I had on the first um, podcast out of this series. And he, I want to give him credit because he said something, we were having a conversation the other day and he said, one of the residual things that he anticipates happening um, on the residential side of real estate is new construction and home and, you know, and, and um, 
remodeled homes are going to have two office options. But That's interesting. Something you never thought of, right? I, I bet he's right. I mean, it makes yeah. a lot of sense to me. And I do, yeah, I think there will be a significant shift um, in the way that people are consuming office space, utilizing office space. Um, we've kind of already gone in that direction, right? Like the whole idea of the open office mm -hmm. is a little bit more like um, utility for everyone, right? Like um, different spaces people can just kind of plop down and use. Maybe you have an assigned desk, maybe you don't. Yeah. Um, maybe you just have a little locker, you can lock your stuff up, but wherever you come to the office, you grab that. So we've already kind of moved in that direction with the open office. And a lot of people are saying we're gonna go back away from that because of this, we wanna separate people again. I don't really think that's true. I think that we'll just have fewer people in the office at a time and more of these spaces where you can sort of isolate from other people. Um, but I, I don't foresee office space sort of going away. And the market doesn't seem to think that. I mean, you, can oh, no. these, you know, with these REITs are trading at, and um, I, I just, I think there will be a lot of people, by the way, this is not ideal conditions to work from home. I know you're experiencing that. I'm experiencing <laughs> that. It's not like we're all working from home and our kids are at school. So this is all yeah. great, whatever we want. We're all, these are kind of the most stressful possible conditions to work from home under. I think there's a lot of people out there who are dying to get back to the office. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Myself included. <laughs> when, when we're allowed to go back to the office, there's going to be, you know, everyone is going to be there for uh, right. like a month. Like, That's right. Great. Because my wife and I would joke like Sunday nights, you know, after being home with the children all weekend, we would joke and be like, oh man, I get to go to work tomorrow. I'm so excited. My wife's a teacher. I mean, she's been making the joke that, you know, all these parents are, all the memes that you see are true. You know, all these parents are finding out all the things their teachers were saying about their kids are true. <laughs> oh God. Um, that's awesome though. So third, third question, we're going to change it up a little bit. So I want uh, I, I want you to share a little bit about your bio. Um, so you owned, you founded and owned Mainline Delivery, right? Yeah, so in 2008, um, a friend of mine from high school and I founded, uh, it was a company called Mainline Deliveries in the suburbs outside of Philadelphia. Um, it was effectively Uber Eats or DoorDash. Uh, we were kind of before our time. For context, the iPhone came out in 2007. So this was not really a time that people were using the internet for services, at least regularly. Obviously, there were other delivery services out there. We weren't reinventing the wheel or anything. Um, but we had managed to sort of corner a market out in the suburbs of Philadelphia where we were kind of the um, sole provider of this food delivery industry as it grew up around us. Um, so I operated that company for eight years from 2008 to 2016. I uh, went to law school while I was running it. I uh, graduated from law school, passed the bar, retired from law immediately, went back to running the company full time. Um, so, but it was, uh, and my partner, Rich, who I ran it with, a friend of mine from high school, Rich Siegel, um, he was sort of running when I was in law school. We just kind of switched off. It worked out really nicely. Uh, in 2016, we were approached by uh, Caviar, who at the time was owned by Square. They've since sold Caviar to DoorDash, and they were looking to um, move out to the suburbs from Center City, Philadelphia, where they had been. Um, and ended up acquiring our company. So I went to work for Square for a few years. But uh, I worked in the, you know, the restaurant delivery industry for, for 10 years. And as a result, became very close with a lot of restaurant owners. I mean, I signed over 200 contracts with restaurants in my time doing that. And kind of recently, it, it's really been hard to watch sort of all these people who I worked with for so long and these businesses that they have built up over their lives kind of disappear in three weeks and it, yeah. it's really unbelievable to see so um i never really thought that what i was doing would be considered an essential business i know you and i were joking around about yeah. that before but it's really become true where these food delivery services even though i'm no longer directly involved in the industry 
have kind of become a lifeline for people for their life the way it used to be, where they can still kind of get that favorite dish they used to get without having to sort of go out there and get it. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, and when we were talking earlier, I, I made, I made the comment that, you know, we always went and picked our food up from wherever we ordered it. And we kind of looked at the people in the, you know, the people in the neighborhood who got delivery were usually a little lazier, right? Or you're like, you know, there's a, there was a judgment. Um, and, and now it's completely different. And so I guess the question I want to get at is, is maybe you can just explain better. So the, these companies that are, are seeing an influx in these, you know, you know, delivery services, they're, they're doing that at a loss or, or at a zero gain, right? You mean the, the restaurants themselves? Yeah. So that's kind of always been the, yeah. the question that these restaurants, and, and when you sell these delivery services to restaurants, you're generally asking for something in the neighborhood of 30% of the total sale, right? That's okay. kind of where the industry has landed on. Um, and the amazing thing is, is that even with taking 30%, none of these delivery companies are profitable, right? Uber Eats, DoorDash, Caviar, none of them make any money. Um, so it's a very difficult industry to, to work well and at scale. And the same thing is the case with restaurants. I mean, they are historically pretty thin margins. Mm -hmm. um, our argument and our sort of counter argument to that these companies are losing money is that they were carrying this large amount of overhead regardless of whether they were doing delivery or not. Right. So you're going to pay your rent, whether you're doing delivery or not, you're paying yeah. your utilities, whether you're doing delivery or not. So if you can almost in your mind separate out the delivery orders as just food cost and labor cost, I don't think you actually lose money on a per order basis. Right. Okay. Um, but I think that the goals of restaurants for the time being have changed and this is not going to go on forever, but I think that a lot of restaurant owners, if they could just keep paying their people, keep their bills paid, and keep the lights on and a delivery service helps them get through this time by doing those things, then I think you have to consider that a win, mm -hmm. right? Um, th these are companies are there, there will be, in my opinion, and no one really knows, and I, I'm no, I don't have a crystal ball, but I would suspect there will be a great deal of companies that don't make it through this. Yeah. And I think that re I don't think you have to be sort of a Nostradamus to, to see that retail and restaurants are going to be hit very hard by this. Yeah. Um, a lot, of, a lot of our clients, they're working from home. Some of them are busier than they've ever been. It kind of depends on what industry you're in. I mean, accounting firms and law firms are being called by every client they have for advice yeah. right now. A lot of people's yeah. phones are ringing off the hook right now, um, but it's not hard to, to see. And a lot of businesses are struggling. I don't mean to minimize that. A lot yeah. of businesses are, their revenue has dropped by 90%, right? But my point is, is that for these retail places and these restaurants, it's extremely visual. Like yeah. you drive by your favorite restaurant and it looks closed, right? Like there's just something about that. And I, and I just, I, I think it's very difficult and I wonder what it kind of looks like on the other end. So if, if these delivery services can keep enough revenue flowing to these restaurants, they can keep their lights on so that on the other side of this, they can decide if it's still worth it to pay that 30%, then, then that's probably a service in and of itself. Yeah. Um, I know that DoorDash just announced recently they're cutting fees for a lot of their independently owned restaurants. So, you know, these companies are doing what they can, but like I said, they don't make any money either. Yeah. So uh, I just, I wonder, I mean, everybody seems to be losing right now. Yeah. But the, the, but I think the re, there, the re, there's a real win here in that sense a sense of community. Right. And I think we needed to be reminded of that. And, and I think it's, you know, it's, it, I not, not, I think it is, it's very nice to see people help pick each other up. And you're seeing businesses pivot, which is yeah. you really have to. Um, 
there's, there's a restaurant here. It's a bakery in Bryn Mawr uh, out in the suburbs here. And they're currently selling like dairy and produce yeah. because they can get it from their supplier. You yeah. know, their, their supplier is not constrained and people want it. And yeah. actually I just placed, I just picked up a hundred dollars worth of dairy and produce from a bakery. Right. Because it was, for me, it was actually the easiest way to get that stuff going to a supermarket. That's called bakery house. Right. On Lancaster Avenue. Let's shout them out. Bakery house. Yeah, no, they, it's been amazing. I mean, it really was. I paid with my credit card over the phone. They brought it out to my car. They dropped it in the back of my, tr in my trunk. And that's not even a store that I frequent, but yeah. because they pivoted, they were able to pick up my business. And now I'm literally shouting it from the rooftops because I just think it was so clever of them to do this. Yeah. Uh, so I think there will be a lot of innovation that comes out of this also just sort of necessarily for, for survival. Yeah. Yeah. So like Iron Hill is a, is a local chain near us. They, they've started doing produce or not produce, but like uh, dairy eggs and they're selling toiletries because right. they get them from a wholesale. Right. But so like you, you say there's going to be like, there's opportunity here. There's a pivot. So you have an entrepreneurial mind, right? You know, you're, you're seeing where there's holes and you see how things are going, you know, where things could be filled. Yeah, I do. I do also, I, I, one of the things that I'm concerned about is, and what Bakery House is doing is amazing and is providing a service for me. Does that really help them long-term except for the goodwill that it builds, right? Because presumably, and I think everyone kind of agrees that there's, whether you think it's two months from now, 12 months from now, yeah. or 24 months from now, I think we can all agree that there will be a time where we will go back out and start consuming things in somewhat close to the way that we used to consume them, yeah. right? So I do think it's important that companies, um, sort of do stick to their roots on some level so you don't lose that. Yes. But there is a way that you can add on services to help people and also keep yourself in business while you, while you try to get through this. Yeah. I don't think you want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, I guess. Definitely not. Definitely not. So before I let you go, uh, two things. Walk me through, how would you pitch a company on like uh, when you were mainline delivery? What was your value add? Um, it shifted over the life of the business. So I'll, I'll work backwards because at the end it was, I'm going to do 500 deliveries this Friday night with or without you. Got it. If you'd like, and I wasn't this crass, but the truth is that was the case. And if you would like to cut yourself off a slice of that pie, here's a piece of paper that you can sign. Right. Because at that point we, we were driving so much value to our, we had multiple restaurants doing six figures a year in sales. They were just through our platform. Right. Um, and for those restaurants, it was becoming a meaningful part of their business because of how large we were getting as an entity. So as we got larger, the sales got easier because my value proposition to the restaurants was so much better, right? Yeah. At the beginning, it was really a matter of finding a couple of restaurants that would just take a flyer on us and just said, you know what? I kind of get the internet. This seems interesting. I don't really see the downside. Let's give it a shot. And those people sort of gave us the ability to get the momentum going. The truth is I was doing a lot of like, you know, telling restaurants that we would do a lot of marketing for them. But the reality was I was hoping that they would do a lot of marketing for us. Right. Um, and it did work both ways for a while. And then eventually it shifted to where we were just clearly like it made sense to join because we were driving such volume. Yeah. So um, I think I was selling the idea and then we were selling the product and then we were selling the sales. Nice. Interesting way to look at it. So cool. Um, Last one before we go, how can people find you? If they have questions, if they need, uh, you know, your services, how can they get you? Uh, my email address yeah. is dritterman at tactics.com. Tactics is T-A-C-T-I-X. 
I'm on LinkedIn. I'm posting some videos, which I've been like trying to do, make some content and use this time wisely, uh, which has been interesting. Um, so I've got some videos up there, but uh, our website is tactics.com. It's T-A-C-T-I-X.com. And I'm just, I'm happy to chat with people about um, food delivery, real estate, <laughs> law, life, all those right. things. Yes. Hopefully we can talk about like baseball soon, right? And basketball. <laughs> Hopefully we talk I, was, about I, I was really looking forward to the Flyers playoff run and um, oh, I'm we still not quite good. over it yet, but you know, yeah. it's look, all, all things considered. I think we all just have to be lucky for what we have right now. Yeah. And um, yeah. we wait this out together. I agree. I agree. I will tag all that information in the notes of the episode. And Dan, it's been a pleasure to have you on today. I appreciate your time. John, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Stay safe out there. Thanks, man. Show. Sure.